Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Charlie is with me today and she's very smug because she's convinced our fabulous guest to join us, despite the fact that he doesn't like doing podcasts. <laughs> I've outed oh, you. <laughs> I definitely get points for this, don't I, Alex? Um, yes. We've we've actually got a repeat offender today, which is um, which is really lovely. Um, so we've we've already convinced this one person to join us. We've then convinced them to come back, which is no mean feat. Today we have got Jonathan Healy with us. He's Associate Professor in Social History at Oxford University, working on poverty, economic development, popular political history and rural history covering the 15th to the 19th centuries. But we are not interested in anything today other than the 17th. Come on, guys. John's first book, The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England, has just been published to wide critical acclaim, and this focuses permanently upon the 17th century. We're lucky to have him with us today to tell us all about it. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, just to clarify, I, I enjoy good podcasts. and, um, and I, 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 this, <laughs> To and be this fair, is... <laughs> you're just a bit podcasted out at the moment. <laughs> I think I've, def- I've, I've definitely appeared on more podcasts than I've listened to. That's the, that's the problem. So, um, yeah, so if I don't know what I'm doing, if I don't even know what a podcast is, um, then that's, uh, uh, it's a reflection of that rather than anything else. Just a miracle that we've managed not to offend you so much that you actually agree to come back again. Most people, no, I'm, I'm joking. Most people aren't one-time people. Everyone wants to come back because we're fun. Absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been waiting for this invitation. I can't believe it took so long. You had to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that what I have to do? Okay, right, fine. I might do another uh, one then. All right, whatever. Hey, if you want to write another one, I will read another one. I thoroughly enjoy reading it. And the reviews, John, are just stellar. How's it been going around the country and getting all this all this praise? I, I mean, it's been it's been fantastic. It, it's um, uh, I mean, I think uh, the the team at Bloomsbury. My, so my publicist, who's called Johnny, uh, is a genius, um, and I don't know how he does it, but he's um, he's managed to sort of get it out there. And um, I've had some really nice reviews. Um, and I think most importantly, really, is that it, it's been really nice to see people enjoying it because it's it is supposed to be an enjoyable history book. It's I mean, it's a very serious subject, and there's a lot of kind of you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of darkness in there, but it's also it is. A 
a great story and it's one that people perhaps don't know quite as well as they as they feel they should um it's perhaps not quite as well known as the you know as the tudor period um so just hearing people say that they they've they've picked it up and they've enjoyed it they've um you know they've got something out of it they've they've uh, they've turned the pages once in a while uh, it's been really really nice yeah the t words um, banned today yeah <laughs> we love it yeah we are we're definitely team 17th here, aren't we, Alex? Good, good. <laughs> Jack is on a mission. Uh, go on, Charlie, you can start. Fantastic. Well, look, we're by the end of this episode, we're going to get everybody reading the book and everybody obsessed with the 17th. The book opens, like all the best stories, I'm thinking The Godfather, <laughs> with a wedding. <laughs> what was so special about the Cartmel wedding? And what does it tell us? about the transition from Tudor into Stuart rule. Well, there isn't a sort of Marlon Brando figure, although actually having said that, there, there sort of is, um, in that this is a, a, it's an occasion which is organised by this sort of local, uh, it's in, it's in the, the far north of England, um, uh, on the edge of the Lake District, kind of, you know, sort of small village, um you know sort of pasture farms that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and um it's uh there's this kind of local gentlewoman whose family are catholics um and she's she's if you like the sort of marlon brando figure here who's kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of organizing everything um and basically the the, the church the local community decide that they're going to have a a special sermon as you do you know to sort of um uh, to celebrate the fact that King James, uh, King James I has just come to the throne and they, they do it on St. James's Day, which is the 25th of July. Um, it's the anniversary of James's coronation down in London. Um, and they get this, uh, they get this, um, minister, um, uh, to come in, uh, to do a special sermon. And what happens is he sort of get, you know, he goes into the church, he stands in the pulpit and then, um, gets, gets all started. And then this procession, um, which, uh, um, you know, a bunch of basically local youths, um, uh, um march into the church they've got you know lots of they're described as having um diverse weapons of war like <laughs> guns and staves and bagpipes um you know <laughs> a, a offensive weapon if there if there ever was one um and they basically march to the front of the church and then two of the two of the the servants two of the blokes um the young the young lads come up to the front and one of them's dressed in sort of normal clothes and the other's dressed in a wedding dress which ah. he's borrowed from Jane, this kind of Marlon Brando um, Catholic um, gentlewoman, um, and then they have a they have a wedding, um, and they they use the the Book of Common Prayer, so the Protestant um, prayer book, uh, to to marry them, and then they sort of sit there in the seats which are supposed to be for for um, for married people, um, and then they march out and they say they have a kind of proclamation saying that Momus will no longer be here. Uh, Momus can, has been uh, can tarry here no longer. I think is the phrase. And Momus was the Greek god of satire. And, and what it is is it's a. Uh, I mean, it's a. It's a kind of a, absolutely bizarre um, uh, spectacle. But but b it's um it's a nice example of the way that comedy mockery um uh um burlesque humor is used in this period as a way of making a political point and the political point is that now that king james has come to the throne queen elizabeth has gone they think that there's going to be new toleration for catholics um and uh the the, the protestants will be will be thrown out and of course it doesn't it doesn't work like that um and, and what unfortunately happens to marlon brando uh, i mean jane jane thornborough the um the gentlewoman is that um a, a year later there's the gunpowder plot um and, and as, as a result of that catholics um um are forced to swear oaths 
to the state and if they don't do that then they lose two-thirds of their land and, and her family loses two-thirds of their land so they kind of the joke's on them if you like but it, what, what the reason the reason I start with it is it's a really nice example of what we think of as being sort of quite high political issues going on in London and Westminster and Whitehall and, and all those kind of places which really do have cut through all the way up the country um in you know kind of rural communities everywhere people kind of they they weren't sort of you know stupid peasants they thought about religion they thought about politics they thought about affairs of state and and that's a sort of running through a running theme for the whole book legally binding (laughs) no (laughs) no 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 they ended up in court they were they were um they were sued uh, by um, this guy from from Lancashire who had been burgled, uh, and the there was this there was this JP a guy called James Anderton who was also also um, a kind of closet Catholic at the time, and what he was doing is he was protecting all of his Catholic mates in Lancashire, um, and this this one guy whose name was uh, Roper I think John Roper had been burgled uh, by some Catholics, and then this this JP had had prevented um, them being prosecuted and he'd basically gone around Lancashire finding examples of James Anderton JP protecting Catholics and and this is one of the cases that he found and he's imagine you know finding this and go oh 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 okay 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 I think I will put that one in the uh in the lawsuit and he's get he's getting um he's getting legal counsel from Edward Cook, uh, the attorney general. So he's kind of connected to the, to the, to the state there. And so no, it's not legally binding. Um, and indeed does get them into quite a bit of trouble. Although no, they never actually get punished for it. It all just gets lost in the courts as a lot of these things do. Let's not rush ahead to where Charlie wants to go, which is to Charles II. Naturally. <laughs> let's explain well, her written a bit. Um, <laughs> because let's start with James I. He uh, he leaves his son with a whole load of issues, doesn't he, that are eventually going to cost him his head. Uh, money problems, the Book of Common Prayer. But tell us about the Book of Sports. What does sport have to do with everyone hating Charles III? <laughs> so I love this because um, one of the things that one of the reasons I think that the, the Stuart period is is quite difficult for modern people to get their head around is there's a lot of issues there which are really deeply felt at the time and which mm. people will ultimately kind of fight and die for, um, which to us seem really kind of esoteric and 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 you know sometimes quite silly actually. Um, yeah. And you know one of the big things is is what the layout of the church is, for example. You know where does the communion table go? Does it go in the middle or does it go right? At the top and that's a really big issue um and you know there are many exciting things that go on in this period under the auspices of the committee for um the committee for altar tables placed as for for communion tables placed altar wise and these committees (laughs) are you know riveting fascinating stuff the the sports thing is is kind of fits into that category it's one of these things which sort of feels a bit obscure to us which was but it was a very deeply held issue at the time and the question is what can you do on a sunday is it is is it allowable after church um, to go away on a Sunday and play a bit of sport or should you be um, should you be uh, you know should you be respecting the Sabbath and sitting at home and and reading there's um, a thing in the Bible isn't there about touching the touching a pig on the Sabbath and stuff and wasn't (laughs) it pig's bladder I'm getting this from the West Wing um but there's (laughs) one row in season one of the West Wing about about nonsense in the Bible that people take too literally and this is one of them 
Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, I, I know exactly the scene you mean in the West Wing because, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, you've but, watched uh, it 30 times as well and memorized As, as everyone of our generation has. Um, just, and, well, can uh, I just say the first two episodes of season two are possibly the two finest episodes of television ever. After. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go back to the 17th century. But I mean, it's in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? I, I, I forget which one it is because unfortunately I don't have them emblazoned on my bedroom. Um, but um, the, uh, you know, honouring the Sabbath. Uh, and what um, the the other side of the argument here is that actually having people play a bit of sport and go to the alehouse and, and do all that kind of stuff um, does is it kind of, you know, it fosters community, it fosters enjoyment um, and and good neighbourhood. And and the other thing that kind of fits into this are, are traditional festivities. So things like the Cartmel wedding, they said, the people who did it, they said, oh, it was just a rush bearing. And a rush bearing is a sort of traditional form of festival in the Northwest. You still get them today, but they're a lot more genteel. Um, there's certainly not um, cross-dressing um sadly um but um and you know some people said actually these festivals are are lovely and they help everyone you know get together we have a nice you know few cans of beer and and enjoy ourselves um and it's a good thing for the young people to get involved in whereas other people say well you know people just get drunk and have lots of illicit sex and then there's lots of you know illegitimate <laughs> children and and all those kind of things and it's a they're, they're a sort of social problem um and these two viewpoints are are very kind of deeply held and, and quite controversial and and what happens in um 1617 and it does come back to it does come back to Lancashire actually here is that James the first is on his way back from Scotland because he's visited Scotland and he stops um uh he stops at a place called Horton Tower uh, which is on the edge of the Pennines and is actually right down the road from where James Anderton lives and I think he might have been there on this occasion I don't I mean can't can't prove it anyway <laughs> whatever whatever um and he's treated to this lavish entertainment and one of the things he sees is a rush bearing and he thinks oh well this is jolly good fun isn't it um and the local uh the local um gentry sort of say to him well yes it is jolly good fun and guess what there are these bastard puritans locally who are trying to stop people do this and it is causing all kinds of trouble locally so james issues this thing called the declaration of sports which says actually on a sunday it is perfectly legitimate for you to do this 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 and this as long as you go to church you've got to go to church but you can have a pint and a kick around afterwards that's fine um very very controversial because it, it goes against these kind of people who want to keep the sabbath um, entirely holy so james very sensibly says okay here's a proclamation this is what i'd like you to do but if you don't do it then i'm not going to make a big thing out of it charles the first unfortunately is a bit less uh diplomatic than his father in this regard and he issues exactly the same thing in 1633 but makes the mistake of saying that every single minister up and down the country has to read it from the pulpit on a sunday otherwise oh, no. they will be fired overkill um, overkill absolutely thus pissing off an awful lot of the clergy um and they do they, they some of them do quite you know they get around it in quite clever ways like one of them gets up really early and then reads it in the church a couple of hours before everyone turns up Oh, okay. uh, very yeah nicely done another one um does this and i, I like this he's, he's a londoner I can't remember which parish is one of the London parishes he says you know he reads out the book of sports he says dearly beloved you have now heard the laws of God and man because he then reads out the ten commandments um you have now heard the laws of God and man you may choose to obey which you please which is very nicely passive aggressive saying you know Ooh. fine obey the king but God is going really, really to be really <laughs> absolutely you will be very making enemies in places much higher than Whitehall Palace um so it does cause a, a a, a huge stink 
Um, so much so that when the Civil War happens, there are some people who say um, that the Book of Sports was the the issue, which, uh, I mean, I don't think they're right. That's, <laughs> but that's not the point. Um, the, some people at the time say that this was the most uh, controversial issue of the, of the time. Um, so, yes, it's, it's again, feels quite esoteric. Um, but things like, you know, the Cotswold Olympics, which are still going on today, um, which are these kind of, um, you know, sort of rural sports that they have in, um, uh, I can't remember whether it's, I think it's in over in Gloucestershire, but it's, you know, it's sort of um, in the Cotswolds and they have these things called shin kicking and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> they are set up by a, a, a local lawyer, a man called Robert Dover, and it's a specific attempt to anger the Puritans that he just, you know, he just thinks this is quite fun. Like we don't, we don't like these guys. They are miserable um, and we are going to set up these, uh, these sports to, just to really kind of annoy them. Uh, and they, of course, have the support of the state at this point, which is why it becomes a bigger issue. I feel like we need a history hack Olympics. Pedantry <laughs> <laughs> can be one of the... Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, sh let's not do shin kicking, though, because that, that doesn't seem very health and safety Compliant. oh can you imagine I the risk assessment very very <laughs> very troubling yeah chaos. absolute chaos yeah <laughs> I, I think all i'm all i'm going to put my name down for is sort of long distance reading um <laughs> i think that that's definitely my kind of level <laughs> i like the idea of competitive pedantry though i mean that's basically yeah. some, i mean like take something here. completely non-controversial like yeah how rubbish were the generals of the First World War? <laughs> I think you're fine. Yeah. Actually, well, yeah. actually. You get bonus points for actually, and I think yeah. you're fine. Not a question, more of a comment. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That's that's the trifecta, those three, I think, in the middle. Poor John's probably got lots of that to look forward to on various book talks going around the country. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to quote your book back at you. <laughs> you know, that, this is a surefire win and I love this terrify sorry an author yeah. as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's already it's forgotten most of it <laughs> these, these aren't John's words these are words that John quoted himself so oh saying, right okay that's okay <laughs> don't definitely. ask me who it was <laughs> <laughs> okay you ready for some Shakespearean reading yeah we're all ready my Laurence Olivier voice uh, where disorder is there's confusion where confusion there's dissension. Where dissension, there's tumult. I love this. These words you quoted that were spoken by one ceremonialist. Now I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> These words were spoken by one minister to his congregation in Kent. And I know that I know I can feel everybody doing it. I know people glaze over when we talk about religion as being one of the major causes of the civil war. But you look throughout your book at the various attempts to enforce religious uniformity, and these seem to be a major catalyst for all of the various revolutions of the 17th century. So why, why does this keep coming up? Why do both Jameses, both Charleses struggle with this? And of course, the Republic as well. Um, it's a great question. And you're right. It's sort of one of those things which I think is... Um, it, it can be a bit of a barrier to um, wider understandings of the period because you know the Tudor period you've got Protestants and Catholics and most people have got a pretty good understanding of, of of that but in this period you get different types of Protestantism really and 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 you know you've got I mean, most most kind of popular history books will talk about um, Arminianism versus 
uh, Calvinism or Arminianism versus Puritanism. And the, the essential difference is that um, about whether good works can get you into heaven, essentially. Um, Puritans don't believe they can. Arminians believe that that they sorry Calvinists believe that they can't Arminians believe that they can Arminians believe that they can um, but unfortunately you then got this kind of question as to what's the difference between a Calvinist and a Puritan um, and what are the different types of Puritan because you've got Episcopalian Puritans you've got Presbyterian Puritans you've got separatists you've got independents blah 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 and it's extremely complicated but the the, the important thing I think and I do try and explain what all these mean in sort of words of one syllable in, in <laughs> the it? book. And I, I hope I've done an OK job of, you know, setting out. Places. Brilliant. Uh, and of course, the, you know, the thing about this period is that it's very it would be very easy for someone to say, well, actually, that's that's you know, that's fine. But there was this guy who was minister for sort of, you know, Schittsmill in Norfolk and who actually we believe that, you know, he was a, a Catholic Episcopalian puritan presbyterian and and, and <laughs> it's fine the, the thing about this period is that there's there's such diversity in the um in the religious uh, makeup of the country that um there are uh, as many i mean the, it was, it was one quote which says you know in england the trouble is in england there are as many religions as there are people um it's a bit like trying to get leeds united fans to agree about something um and um the uh the, but that's the important point. The important point is that there's so much sort of literacy and there's so much discussion about religion um, that lots and lots of different people have lots and lots of different views. And the ceremonialist, um, whose name I can't remember from Kent that you just quoted, um, it, the, the point that he's making really is that because um, there is all this dissension, it's causing um, it's causing tumult or disorder in the state. So one of the arguments for um, having uniformity, and in particular, in this case, a very sort of uh, ritualized and ordered form of uniformity where people, you know, as part of the sermon, part of the service, they 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 bow at the name of Jesus and, and they do all this kind of um, what Milton would call cringing and bowing. Um, <laughs> and that these sort of these um, uh, kind of um, rituals of deference, basically, um, that is a response to this kind of more um, uh, diverse landscape. It's a way of trying to put the put the lid back on um, Pandora's genie lamp or whatever the metaphor is. <laughs> uh, so it, it sort of one thing kind of feeds into the other in that you get this kind of, you know, there's much more literacy. Um, that means people are discussing this stuff because it matters to them because they're actually quite bothered about whether they're going to hell and how they do get mm -hmm. to heaven. Um, and that then leads to a bit of a kind of reaction from some uh, some uh, churchmen to who basically sort of say, well, you know, we, we can't have all this discussion. We can't have these horrible Puritans going away and sort of, you know, deciding what they think about God. That's just not acceptable. They need to obey the bishop. They need to bow at the name of Jesus. They need to come to the altar um, and to get communion and they need to shut up about it, basically. Um, so, it, 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 yeah, it, it's kind of it's a reaction to that. I think the only thing, if I was going to like, you know, in a pub, try and sound clever, uh, Anabaptists are basically mad, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I mean, don't they? Uh, the Anabaptist movement is a bit earlier, he says. Um, uh, yeah, I think I've got it from like but... <laughs> CJ Saxon and the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. keyword before, but yeah. yeah, yeah. But the essential concept is the same as baptism, isn't it? That you 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 have to wait till you're an adult until you. Uh, are grown up enough to make a decision and i can i can sympathize with that a lot i mean you know a lot of these groups you sort of look at what they think and you think there's an awful lot of logic there it, you know kind of all place and that's another thing i'm trying to do in this book in that in the, i think um 
you know, so many people approach this period with a kind of, oh, I know which side I'm going to be on in these great debates. And, you know, I know that the royalists were just, you know, um, stupid sex crazed, um, you know, idiots who believed in the divine right. Or I know that the Puritans were just dowdy farts who just didn't really allow people to have fun. And and that, I think, is a real barrier to people understanding it. So I, I do try at every opportunity to try and explain why perfectly rational people in this period could be Puritans, they could be Arminians, they could be Royalists, they could be Parliamentarians, they could be Levellers, um, they could be ra- Ranters, uh, they could be Whigs, they could be even Tories. Um, so there's lots and lots of moments where there are these kind of different um, viewpoints that people get, which perfectly rational, perfectly sensible, perfectly intelligent men and women make a decision to adhere to. And I want to try and allow them the, you know, the the decency, if you like, to to um, to be to not not to be talked down to by historians for us to try and understand where they were coming from um you know and royalism for example is a really really good example it's a perfectly rational thing to say i don't believe that um uh, or i believe that neighborhood is more important than someone's relationship with god and it's a perfectly rational thing to say actually puritans who are going around for very good reasons of, uh, uh, on their own in their own mind telling people that they can't you know go to the pub on a sunday it's perfectly rational for people to say that that's that's you know that that does that's not for me and and that's i think what's what i'm trying to capture there you know it's it's a, as much a book about why royalism is rational in a way <laughs> um, <laughs> even though i don't think it's where i would sit on the you know on the on the spectrum where i to be living through the 17th century but you know it's a there's 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 rational beliefs there puritan is like an insult isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um they would call themselves the godly of course charlie's uh, like damn right it is <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's really it is interesting because for every for every say digger that you've got and there's this idea of you know being being one with god and working the land and everybody sharing what what they what they grow and that sort of lovely um idyllic uh view of religion and community and and way of life you get like the fifth monarchists who think right if we kill the if we kill the king now when the king's dead that fourth monarchy will be dead and so jesus christ will come back and we'll all be saved (laughs) And but in the sense, I mean, I, in, in the mindset of the period where you you have a belief in a, in a, the literal truth of the Bible, there is a certain rationality there. And I, yeah, I mean, so fifth monarchists are a bit mad, um, but but there is a rationality to it. And you know, I, I think that's something that's important not to lose sight of. These weren't just sort of you know crazed lunatics running around chopping people's heads off willy nilly. They were people who were sort of you know thinking about faith and god and 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 all these kind of things in intelligent ways even if to us they do look a bit mad (laughs) do you think this was like the natural um the the sort of natural thing that was going to happen within a few generations of english people actually being able to read the bible for themselves so you you take it and you you produce it in english you can read it if you can read you can read this the word of god like direct no middleman you can experience it for yourself do you think this was just like a nap all these all these denominations and all these sort of little splinter groups do you think it was yeah. just a natural thing 
Well, there's another West Wing quote, isn't it? And I think is um, I can't remember which which one it is. Um, I think it might be Toby um, who's asked, um, <laughs> do, do you believe the Bible is the literal word of God? And his response is, yes, I just don't think I'm qualified to understand it. And yes. it's a really quite it's a really interesting sort of fine um, uh, kind of finer point, really, isn't it? And I think there's that kind of in this period, lots of people um, start to believe that they are rationally qualified to to understand the word of God in the Bible, as as you know, as reported in the Bible. And um, and that then feeds this kind of um, this this debate as well. And it's also interesting that actually uh, an, an, another big theme of the book is that it's not just a war of religion. It's not just a century of religious conflict. It's also a century of constitutional conflict. It's all about the law. And the other thing that's going on in this period is that lots and lots of people are involved in lawsuits. You know, they are suing each other left, right and centre. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's just a kind of a fundamental part of how people think in this period. They think, you know, my neighbour has allowed their their chicken to stray into my wood. So I'm going to sue them for a few pence. Why not? Um, and that kind of legal um, way of thinking also kind of um, encourages people to think about where power resides, where sovereignty resides um, and what the sort of you know correct organization of the constitution um is so there's just an awful lot of stuff like that in this period which is forcing people or encouraging people to think um and to develop their own uh opinions about this and what's so impressive really is that you know people don't we, we sort of have this image of um people in this period as being sort of you know a bit a bit dumb and deferent um but actually men women children in this period they all kind of sit there and they they don't just think well you know so and so has told me this the bishop has told me this um they think well what do i think um what, what's my view on where power should reside between um, king and parliament and and that's i think what makes it so interesting because you know it's 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 the sort of dem democratization of ideas and 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 i think it just makes it such a a fascinating period and it's not as i say it's not just religion it's about the law it's about the constitution as well foreign policy all these things love it <laughs> absolutely you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right. We have talked to you before about the downfall of Charles I. It's an excellent episode and you should go back and find it or else. Um, so we're going to we're not going to rehash that. We're going to talk instead about revolution. So you make a really interesting point in the book that Oliver Cromwell may have been the best person to rule if you wanted to see a restoration of the monarchy. Uh, what is it about him? And were there alternatives that could have made the republic stick? 
That's a really good question. And the honest, the honest answer is I, d- I don't know. Um, the thing with Cromwell is that he is, um, by his own, uh, by his own standards, he's incredibly successful. I mean, he manages to, um, he manages to square the circle really, because by 1658, um, there isn't really very much active royalism. I and mean, there's this kind of, you know, um, this sort of dandyish um you know bloke over the channel who's basically just annoying all the royal families of of, of europe who just want want basically want rid of him well exactly just you know <laughs> making a nuisance of himself um but in england there's there's very little kind of active royalism you know people are just they they i mean they may deeply you know they 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 may have a sort of deep-seated um longing if you like for the return of the monarchy but they're certainly not prepared to rest risk their necks for it um and in you know in a sense that's a massive achievement by Cromwell because there's no you know when he was born and he's sort of Cambridgeshire farm there's 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 no one who would have predicted that um uh which doesn't sort of really need saying um but um and the way he's able to do that is that basically he kind of he's able to sort of play to these kind of conservative gentry who basically just want a return to peace and order and strong and stable government. You know, that's what they want. And that's what he provides. Um, the trouble is that the the, the sort of foundations are, are not there. It's very personal. It's you know, it's based on his own personal charisma. Um, and when he dies, um, leaving his rule, uh, leaving his protectorship to his son, Richard, who is, I actually think, one of the most sympathetic, he's one of the nicest guys in the period. And and also one of the most sensible because he just says, actually, well, bugger this. I'm going to go back to my, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to go traveling around the coast. I mean, OK, he's been pursued for debt, but eventually sort of ends up retiring to Hertfordshire. I mean, nice work. Um, but um, but he's not, you know, he's not capable of kind of holding the army together or holding anything together. So. So in a sense, you know, Cromwell is 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 very, very successful while he is alive and at the centre. But he, there's no kind of um, there's no um, long there's no roots which get put down, really, for uh, for a Republican form of government. And the trouble is that later on he becomes this sort of bogeyman, which um, is partly justified, really, because he's sort of, you know, personally not a particularly sympathetic character. Let's put it that way. Um, he, I'd go with Dick. <laughs> I mean that's another that's another way of putting it, but as a serious historian, of course, like I, yeah. I I can't make such judgments. Um, but uh, but you know he's 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 there's the um you know he's brutality in Ireland, which you know for the in the period, of course, people are much more upset about the regicide than they are about what he does in Ireland. Um, uh, but but there's that. I mean, he's there's the whole kind of Puritan element to it in that he is kind of associated slightly unfairly, I think, with this view of um, this very sort of um, austere view of society where you know all the festivals are cancelled and people can't play football and actually that's partly the the christmas the christmas thing which we shall not mention because there's been (laughs) there's been enough uh discussion of that um um, but uh you know it's 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 a lot of it's the people around him actually and there's a whole generation of people who grow up in the early 17th century they see quite a lot of social problems um and that encourages them to to think about reforming society and making things better and and that involves kind of basically kind of controlling society and cromwell sort of a lot of his supporters are in that group but those people could have been supporters of charles the first quite easily um so but that image that sort of dowdy image of this miserable and fairly kind of you know 
um, uh, unpleasant uh, Puritan. And, and not only that, but he's um, on the left. He's attacked because he's the one who betrays the revolution. He betrays the levelers. Um, he uh, betrays the new model army as well. Um, so he's, um, you know, in, in a way, in a way, he, he hasn't got any good choices. And, and, you know, anyone would have been in that situation. But also I think the fact that he's personally so unpleasant um, or, or can be made to appear so unpleasant is quite a, a nice um thing for monarchists later on because if someone says oh we should abolish the monarchy then they will say well, well who do you want in charge oliver cromwell tony blair <laughs> you know and and, and 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 that sort of image of you know people like blair as a sort of latter-day cromwell is is quite a sort of interesting one. anyway um but but that's why i sort of slightly mischievously suggest that they should put his statue outside um, um buckingham <laughs> palace um yeah <laughs> oh i love that it's it's fascinating because it in so many ways this kind of moment of should we let's just call it Brexit so you know, <laughs> get rid of we get rid of the king we know we don't want a king um but that that sort of discussion that's happening okay well what are you going to do in its place so Cromwell's experimenting for years and you've got I mean the the one that everyone really remembers and all of the worst bits of the um I'm going to call it the interregnum because I can um the parliament of saints the real extremists yeah I mean, it's a funny old idea because i mean basically the, the idea is that um you you get rid of parliament which in fairness to cromwell and i realize those that phrase is not allowed on this show um, <laughs> in fairness to cromwell parliament had sat for a very very long time and so it had very little mandate by 1653 oh, so so imagine? him yeah him getting rid of it is sort of vaguely justified in 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 my view um and then they try this experiment where they basically nominate 150 people who who are pleased to call themselves saints um and uh, and they then vote themselves as a parliament but then the whole thing goes completely um completely tits up uh because there's there's these kind of two factions in that parliament there's the conservatives and the radicals and they hate each other and basically one day in december the conservatives all come in like a couple of hours early and then just vote to dissolve the whole thing and then the the army comes in and gets rid of them again so it's all just a bit of a it's a bit of a fiasco really um and uh yeah and it doesn't you know that it it doesn't do it doesn't do the republican regime any favors because these are this is the sort of moment where it is really the sort of the religious um uh hardliners if you like um who are uh, closest to power and it's people like thomas harrison the fifth monarchist who who believes that this will usher in the second coming and of course all it does is it ushers in a load of arguments about the reform of the court of chancery in uh, um, in parliament which is not, not as far as i can tell quite the same thing uh so so yes and, and it is a, it's a disaster and it is um it is a sort of it is the most radical point of, of the republic but it also has that kind of um it hits that sweet spot of being um, radical, but without having the sort of socially radical side to it that that you'd probably want as a, um, a you know, from from today's perspective. Um, and from then on, really, things kind of start to move in a much more conservative direction, um, starting with the protectorate, the instrument of government, which is a written constitution uh, in 1653, and eventually with the the offer of the crown to, to Cromwell in 1657. And there's a great irony with the offer of the crown. And I did try and get this across in the book, but I have no idea how, how successful I was. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the, 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 the war initially was about about one side who believed that power comes from God and another side, i.e. the royalists, and another side who believed that power comes from the people. 
and then um, you get the uh, the army constitution of 1653 and, and Parliament is very, very upset that they think that this in this case power is coming from the army. So that's bad. So so they offer the kingship to, to Cromwell. The point being that because it's been offered by Parliament, it is an offer which comes from the people. So what they're trying to do there is they're trying to make Cromwell's rule and the new monarchy that they're going to create one which is uh, which has its origins in uh, in the people. But of course, Cromwell says, well, God has told me that kingship should be cast away and that kingship monarchy is is you know against the rules of god so so in a sense he's got a sort of divine right argument about it that's why he refuses it um so it is a very it's a pleasing irony and also a nicely complicated one. Oh, it's it's one it's just wonderful it's such a mad moment of of time one of the things i i enjoy most about your telling of this period of history is the sense you create john that key players don't come out of a vacuum. It doesn't sort of, you don't wake up one day and there's Oliver Cromwell's there. Where, where did he come from? They're all products of the time that they've lived through. So in your mind, this I wanted to ask you, of all of the kind of key players um, in your book, who's your favourite agent of chaos or <laughs> list of change that you got to write about? Who, who do you really just enjoy? I mean, I love writing about Margaret Cavendish, whose who's, um, work gave the book its title. I just think she's such a fascinating character. I mean, a, quite a snob in lots of ways, but also a, a sort of real kind of, you know, pioneer of, of women's literature and and all of the the sort of you know a lot of the the, the literati uh, of the time think that she's completely bonkers you know john evelyn's wife says that you know she's completely mad and and it's entirely her husband's fault for allowing her to go abroad um and uh and you know there's the she she really does kind of um create a stir um I also love people like Archbishop Lord, who, you know, has a sort of bad press, but uh, he's quite an interesting cat. He's a man who's he's a sort of stuffy Oxford Don who prefers the company of his cats. Um, and and he's just, you know, he's got fairly kind of reasonable-ish views, um, which chime with a lot of people, but he's just such a difficult man to deal with and he just really puts people people on edge and and then causes all kinds of problems be, because of his you know sort of stuffiness if you like um and then there's people like james ii you know in a sense in 1685 in in some ways he comes to the throne with this kind of really kind of strong state standing army lots and lots of money um lots and lots of people on side and then he just messes it up because he he just um he, he angers his natural supporters um although again so one of the things i'm trying to show there in the book is that um th is that james is sort of he is partly a victim of of the times that he lives in as well we can't just as with charles i i think as well you know a lot of historians these days sort of tend to look at the reign of charles I and say well he's just hopeless he's just an idiot he just makes all these wrong decisions um and i think that there is a, a bit of that but i i think he's also dealt with a very very difficult hand a more difficult hand than people necessarily credit and he's not the stupidest man on the planet let's put it that way um I mean, James II maybe has more of a more of a claim to being the stupidest stupidest man on the planet, but but he is. Um, but even he, I mean, when he comes to the throne in 1685, he is given this situation where there's this big political split between Whigs and Tories, and Charles, his brother, has basically kind of tacked the monarchy onto one political party. It's become a sort of Tory monarchy, if you like. Um, and then James, of course, makes the mistake of of, of alienating the Tories, which is a, a very silly thing to do in this period. Um, so there are lots and lots of agents of chaos. And I think, you know, one of the things 
you know, you're right that I'm trying to kind of introduce a lot more kind of structural stuff, a lot more about social change, a lot more about um, deep seated ideological issues about the Constitution. But there is plenty of room for people just messing things up or people just making split second decisions which have really kind of long-standing consequences um and you know it, it can sometimes history can sometimes feel like that bit in jurassic park um where where um uh malcolm uh you know um uh, what's his um Ian, chaos um, theory Jeff yeah Dolphin. exactly yeah. and he's got this thing about there's a there's a you know there's a, a drop of water on your hand yeah and you know it, you could drop the same thing in the same place but you don't know which way it's going to go and there's always a little bit of that about history um and that's i i do think you know it is really important for historians even ones like me who focus on kind of social history and and very sort of you know lots of numbers and all that kind of thing we, we do need to think about the way history is something which moves forward in time and there's a sort of not a randomness but there's a there's real unpredictability to uh, the way history develops um and i say that's why narrative history is so important tiny variations in the hairs on the back of your hand yes absolutely i love that we, we reference jurassic park and the west yeah Oh. Could we please add that to the merch store, a mug that says history is like Jurassic Park? Yeah, I'm going to send you both a hilarious meme um, of Jeff Goldblum and that someone's made for that, which I absolutely love. Uh, but can we really describe the English Civil War as a revolution? So surely the restoration, it just puts everything back to where it was, doesn't it? So if Charles II's ascension was predated by Parliament to the moment they cut his dad's head off, is it worth it? Hmm. Um, it's a great question. Um, and I think, uh, there's an awful lot which has changed. Um, there's, uh, I mean, in terms of, in terms of the sort of, um, the, 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 the picky details, for example, um, the, the vast majority it, before in Charles I's reign, most tax comes from the royal prerogative. Whereas after um, the restoration, the vast majority, about 90% of English tax revenues come from Parliament, ultimately. Um, and there's also, you know, no one would really kind of dream of ruling without Parliament. Um, again, I mean, I know, <laughs> I know Charles II does at the end of his reign, but there's no, um, there's no um, expectation that that will continue forever. It's just a sort of, you know, temporary, uh, temporary thing. Um, and also, you know, all these kind of uh, all the ideas that came out of the English Civil War and all the ideas which helped create the English Civil War, they haven't gone away. Um, and the other thing that I'm really keen to, to emphasise in this book is that, you know, think movements like the levellers, movements like the diggers, which, of course, at the 20th century, um, you know writers historians in a very secular world we we love the levelers and the diggers we you know they're, they're fascinating and they're they look very kind of forward-looking and progressive and and they were um but they are less numerically important than the the many religious movements and i and i i don't in the book but in some of the publicity i talk about the quakers i mean i do talk about the quakers in the book but it, i i refer to the quakers as the the sort of the england's the greatest um ever english peasant movement and and those movements the the quakers the baptists um you know the presbyterians who of course out on their ear after 1660 they don't go away and that diversity within the church which is part of the reason that james ii finds things so difficult um it is is a real kind of really important a really long lasting um uh, uh consequence of, of the revolution so um so yeah i mean you know the monarchy comes back but i, I don't it's not the same monarchy it, it's not as powerful um and it, it's it really struggles to claim to rule by divine right in the late 17th century there's a lot of things that the the, the monarchy would like to do but they can't um so yeah 
So yes, it was a revolution. It was a terribly important as well. You should read a book. About it. <laughs> there's, there's a good one just come out. In fact, uh, we can recommend <laughs> an amazing book if you want to read about it. You must get John Healy's The Blazing World because it it really does deal with it. Now you've touched on this, and it's one of my favourite moments in history. So we're going to talk about it. It's rarely discussed. It's frequently discussed in my house. Um, you argue that this could be considered a revolution of sorts. So let's talk about Charles II dismissing his parliament in March 1681. What's revolutionary about a monarch dismissing a parliament? Well, (laughs) so I don't think there's any... Well, I don't think it's... I don't think it's revolutionary as such, but um, there is potentially, if he then tries to rule without parliament for a long period of time... Um, then that that could become, you know, an, an attempt to rehash, if you like, the personal rule of Charles I. Um, and indeed, there is an excellent book by a colleague of mine, which is called The Personal Rule of Charles II, uh, or The Personal Rule of Charles II. Uh, um, and um, so it, it, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's quite important because he's uh, he is trying then to, to rule without Parliament. And the reason he can do it is he's, he's getting money from from France and he's getting money from customs and excise uh, which are granted at the start of his reign by parliament Um, and those you know because trade is really taking off in this period in the 1680s after there's a war with the Dutch has recently finished and trade is you know getting loads of money from the monarchy so he he can sort of get away with doing this Um, but it's not going to be the case forever because as soon as the king dies all that stuff will have to be um, granted again um, so whereas I think in the 1630s, when Charles I tries to rule without Parliament, there was potentially the possibility for that to become um, the, you know, the, the norm uh, moving, you know, going forward for as long as as long as it could. Um, I don't think that's the case with with Charles II. Um, what is quite sort of almost revolutionary about it, I think, is that the is the, the story behind what happens in 1681, which is that there's this, you know, the exclusion crisis, as you know, where um, James, Duke of York, the king's brother, um, and one of a sort of long line of dubious Dukes of York um, has, um, he's been, you know, he's been outed as a Catholic, and, and lots of people think this is terribly, um, you know, terribly problematic. Uh, and there's a move in Parliament to say, well, actually, you know, because you're a Catholic, you can't become king. And if that had happened, then that sets a really strong precedent for Parliament basically dictating the succession. And that confirms um, that Parliament is supreme over the monarchy, uh, which, of course, is eventually confirmed in 1702 with the Act of Settlement. Um, but, but that has a potential to be revolutionary, but Charles is able to kind of face them down. He's very clever about it. I think, you know, Charles is quite canny, or at least the, the people advising him are very canny. Um, and he's able to, he, he uses propaganda, he uses his Scottish army, um, he manages to, you know, leap upon this um, a, a plot um, that, that, that his enemies are, are engaged in. And he basically kind of tacks himself to one of these two political parties, which has sprung up recently, the Tories, who are the sort of, you know, the, the high Anglicans, they are um, supporters of, of, of you know um, royal uh, supremacy um, and you know anti uh, anti dissenter uh, and Charles is able to kind of say right okay well we've got this big body of people who do support me so I'm just going to hang out with them for a bit um, and uh, and that seems to that seems to work okay for for a bit and and then after the after Parliament goes there's this kind of big attempt to um, uh, uh, the Tory uh, reaction don't they um, the um, and um, yeah there's a big attempt to kind of 
remold local um, corporations and make sure that the Tories are going to win the next general election, which of course they do in 1685. Um, so it is, it's a, it, it is kind of revolutionary, but it, in sort of quite modern ways, in a sense, because a lot of it's about party politics. And that really is one of the things that has changed over this period in that, you know, party politics suddenly becomes a, a big thing in a way that we, we understand today. Um, but at the time looked quite weird and quite new <laughs> and quite, quite worrying, actually. <laughs> Still troubling. Indeed, yes. Well, one party state, that's what we should have. No, I, I guessed, <laughs> of course. He's joking. Absolute <laughs> monarchy, John. Absolute monarchy. Absolute monarchy. Well, you do see some people on, on social media advocating that um, Charles III should uh, engage in personal rule. And, um, you know. I think they're uh, just so fed up with politics. They just want to. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, sure. You know, yeah, yeah. Again. That'll do as well. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. Let's not touch modern politics. We haven't. <laughs> we haven't got enough time yeah, yeah. to deal with that. Uh, do you think this action sets James II up to fail, though? So has Charles basically handed him a poison chalice with the crown? Um, were these revolutions always going to lead to the glorious revolution of 1689, or is it just James being James? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of mistakes which happen, and the other factor that you've got to, you've always got to have in here is is William, William of Orange, because he is, um, you know, he's the one who actually has the gumption to bring over a massive invasion um and there's a lot of stuff going on in in europe as well in that there's this kind of big kind of beef between louis the 14th and william of orange and, and england sort of or, or england scotland and ireland become kind of pawns in this in this great game really um and you know it lots of people are sort of oh well you know the glorious revolution all it was was a foreign invasion blah 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 um and i think you know it was partly a foreign invasion but there was a lot more uh, there was a lot more to it than that um and i think um one of the things i'm trying to get across here is that uh, without I, poison chalice is probably a bit strong but there's there's definitely um a a kind of potential for instability in the in the late 1680s which has come from a lot of you know things which have happened before um it's come from the rise of the literate middling sort and the coffee houses and the newspapers and it's come from the fact there are two political parties and that you know some of the issues about the constitution haven't been settled yet um so while Charles is, I think, very successful in facing down the Whigs in um, in the exclusion crisis, he he doesn't then he, he never again has a, such a sort of broad base of support uh, or his government doesn't in the way that in 1660 there was pretty broad support. I mean, there were there are a few people who were still kind of, you know, wanted Cromwellian rule or, or Republican rule, but there's pretty broad support for the for the monarchy in 1660. But by 1685, it's much more fractured, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that James finds it so hard to um, to rule. And of course, you know, when when things really don't really go to um, go to go to shit for James, um, he it's not just about an an army coming across it's about his own army refusing to fight it's about the the breakdown of order that happens in 1688 and of course it's about seven politicians from across the political spectrum writing a letter to william and saying do you know what if you're not too busy you couldn't just <laughs> pop over and sort out england could you that would be terribly nice and if they didn't do that then i think william might not have done it so there's you know there's, there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of factors there um, in, you know, what, what is a very, very complicated, but very, very interesting uh, moment in our history. I think William of Orange is one of the most fascinating. I mean, in, in terms of sort of an agent of chaos, I, I j'accuse William of Orange of, of quite a lot. I, I love that he he had Monmouth with him. So Monmouth is Charles II's 
eldest illegitimate son. And the, this is the Protestant Duke that people are thinking, maybe we could get Charles to just exclude his brother and we'll have Monmouth instead. But after Charles is dead, it's William who's got Monmouth with him. He says, do you know what you should do? What you should do? Go, go fight your uncle. Go, mm. go on, go take your throne. He gets killed. That's an heir out of the way. Um, and earlier when he, he publishes a letter from Charles II offering to end the Anglo-Dutch war if he gets rid of his ministers, he publishes that letter and that ends up with those ministers being lynched and eaten by their own people. Mm. William is, I think he's got a dark side to him. Oh, definitely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and a uh, fascinating. And in some in some ways, a, um, a kind of heir to Cromwell in a way in that you know, he, he, he does have this sort of you know, strong basis in the army, um, quite a successful general um, and also is able to kind of accept a belief that his own power is is um, is restrained by parliament and the, the the one thing that william does of course as well is that as soon as he gets the english throne the, the throne in um, england scotland and ireland is that he then goes off on campaign so they have to find ways of governing without him and that helps kind of create this um uh, this ability to govern without the monarchy, which of course is, you know, it's something which has been going back right through the century. And I think that's one of the biggest changes of the century is that the monarchy becomes a lot less important to the the day to day running of the government. And it, it is partly because William is a quite unpleasant because nobody likes him. B, he thinks uh, he, he's off on campaign. And C, when he is in England, he thinks London stinks. So he doesn't want <laughs> he doesn't want to he doesn't want to stay in Whitehall, which is, you know, just a bit too close to the smelly, um, smelly capital. So he goes down to um, to Kensington, um, and and that's where he uh, that's where he hangs out, and that's just that little bit further away from um, from from the from the action. You know, you think about Charles I, where a lot of and you know James I, a lot of their political life takes place in Whitehall Palace, and and if it's not there, then it's Hampton Court, which is not that far away, or even Richmond, which is also not that far away. Um, and of course, you know Kensington is it's closer than those. My geography of London isn't that bad, um, but but William really doesn't like coming into the centre of the uh, centre of the action. And it burns down on his watch as well. It does, yes. There's a Dutch washerwoman apparently, 1698. So um, yeah, although I do wonder whether that's just a sort of you know, <laughs> this the one thing the one thing that the English are very dark, good at right? in this period, yeah, is blaming <laughs> fires on foreigners. You know, the French, the French guy who started the fire of London. Um, allegedly etc etc <laughs> excellent oh. john this has been absolutely fantastic thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your new book what's it called again oh do you want me to do that it's called the blazing world a new history of revolutionary england and it is out now from bloomsbury it is indeed we will put it in the history hack bookshop because then if you buy it uh we all get money basically oh fantastic do history that then. Yes. money you get money yeah. Amazon doesn't get any money. They got enough money. Um, yeah, buy it from us or else. Uh, but do buy it because it is fantastic. And on you go to more uh, book touring and more podcasts and more talking about this. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, John. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, 
or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.